0: Good morning, everyone. I hope you are doing well. If you haven't met me, my name is Dan, as Matt said, and I get the joy of uh, talking to you from the Bible today. And uh, actually, uh, on the Australian theme, I wanted to start off by talking about the Australian Open Tennis Tournament that is happening in a couple of weeks' time. You may have seen in the news that because of corona stuff, They've been flying in players and coaches on specially chartered planes, and there have been some cases, some positive cases of corona uh, on the planes, and therefore the players have had to quarantine, uh, and quarantine for two weeks. And you can imagine that, I can imagine, because, you know, I like to think of myself as maybe an open tournament tennis champion one day, um, that this wasn't part of their training, it wasn't part of their preparation to have two weeks locked in a hotel room uh, where they can't really see anyone, they obviously can't run or train or practice. And there's been some interesting videos they've posted and uh, you can see them uh, trying trying to practice the forehand and the backhand hitting... I think they must be softballs, because otherwise things would definitely break, but hitting them uh, against walls and against windows and trying to do exercises in the room. And uh, some of it's been quite innovative. I mean, maybe there'll be a company that can eventually market some uh, tennis practice in hotel room products, but maybe not. We'll see. We'll see. The other thing that has been happening is, is on social media, you can hear some of the players have been tweeting uh, about their mental health. Actually, some of them are getting a bit worried, a bit anxious, that they, in you know, two weeks in a room, they're not going to be at the physical peak they were planning on being at. And uh, their mental game is, you know, is, is taking some knocks. And, and so it's this real wrestle, you know, while they're in this quarantine, how are they going to make the best of it? And that got me wondering about our lockdown experience. And what things have actually been a positive for us in lockdown. Because when someone asks me, I can come out with a whole string of negatives. You know, I miss my friends. I miss coming to church. I miss going to restaurants. But there are some positives that I think we can each find. And I've realized as a family, you know, we've slowed down our pace of life. And actually, that's healthier for us. And actually, I want to keep doing that even after the lockdown's lifted. I've realized that we've been forced to be a little bit more creative, to think about kind of how do we work around these things, a bit like those tennis players. So my parents, who live in a different country and haven't been able to visit, are reading bedtime stories over FaceTime to my kids. And actually we listen in too. But it's been a great bonding moment. You know, Soph and I who would love to do a a, a weekly date, a time once a week where we get to hang out together and talk and we'd usually go to a restaurant somewhere, we can't do that. And so we're having to get creative at home and uh, make time and space where it's easy just to get stuck in kind of the, the humdrum of life. And we have been forced to innovate and i reflected a little bit more because this is one of the things i've realized lockdown does that we begin to try and figure out what is more important what's less important what can we live out with what can we live without and what do we want to continue afterwards and i was beginning to think about the spiritual effects you know how has lockdown affected me spiritually And there's definitely some days where I feel like God is just far away and uninterested. And other days I feel like he's so close and super engaged. And often it fluctuates between the two. You know, I really miss gathering together as much as I'm grateful for this technology to be able to meet you in your living room. I'd love to be speaking to you in this room. You know, I miss the kind of worshipping together, singing songs together, getting that... I I get kind of a boost of faith when I see others worshipping God alongside me. I've had to innovate. We play more worship music at home. I wasn't a big fan of listening to worship music. But I've put more of it on. When I'm cycling now, I'm listening to more of it. I'm listening to the Bible because there are some great apps out there that can speak the Bible to you. So I'm listening to that when I'm uh, cycling or running. Having to innovate in this time, because it's tricky, particularly in our house, to find kind of quiet spaces and times where you, you can be on your own. Sof takes a daily walk. And as I've been preparing for this talk, I'm increasingly convinced that actually lockdown, lockdown is a great opportunity for us to grow spiritually. It's a great opportunity for us to grow spiritually. And in this sermon series that we've called Lockdown Prayers, we're going through a number of prayers that Paul in the Bible, he's a preacher, a church planter, an apostle, he prays for different churches that he's kind of been a part of starting usually. And uh, He's actually writing today's prayer whilst he's in prison. So he's under lockdown himself and uh, we're looking at how these prayers can then bring liberty to our city in different ways. So often these prayers have been a bit surprising. They aren't what we'd normally think to pray for. And today's prayer, as I said, it's a, it's a prayer for spiritual growth. As Christians, we believe in God. We believe in a God who wants to be known by us, who's made himself known to us through the Bible. The Christian faith is both practical and it's experiential, so we expect to experience God's love, and then we expect to live out that love in our city in a real practical way. Today's prayer is just one sentence, but actually there's a lot of concepts packed into it. So I'm going to read it now. As I read it, listen for the inputs. What are the things Paul's praying for, and what are the kind of the consequences? What are the results of what he prays for? It's in Philippians one, two verses, nine, three verses. Philippians one, nine to eleven. Paul says, writes, and it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent. And so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. There's a lot there. Three things he specifically prays for. The first is abounding love. Now, last week, Matt talked about God's love for us, and he talked about its vastness, its length, its depth, its height. I'm not going to talk about that today, but that is the foundation for this week's talk. They kind of, they go hand in hand. So do listen to that talk if you didn't get a chance to. Because from knowing God's love, we can begin to love others. And that's the love that Paul is just writing about here, that he wants our love for others to abound. And we can only love others because God first loves us. And for love to abound, it speaks of it kind of overflowing, of being a a more-than-we-need kind of a love. It's not a small, stingy kind of a love. It's, you know, to abound is like, and this may have happened when I did an Internet order for five carrots and received five kilos of carrots. There was an abundance of carrots in our household that day, way more than we needed. For love to abound is like when you decide it's lockdown, I'm going to have a quiet birthday, and then you get these messages throughout the day of people appreciating you. So abounding in love is to have an excessive amount of it, is to overflow, to almost feel a compulsion to share it, like some friends of mine did when they knocked on my door this week with food that they had in excess of. I felt very loved by that. And Paul as well, is talking about quite a specific love here, because in English, we kind of have one word for love, love, but the Bible has a few words, it was written in Greek, and there's a few different Greek words that kind of take on, express different aspects of love, and this love that's being expressed here is a love that demonstrates itself with selfless action toward another person. It's a selfless, active love. And uh, it's called agape love. And actually when Jesus says, love your enemies, that's the word he's using there, that we need to kind of selflessly, actively love our enemies. We need to agape them. This is clearly not a fluffy, sentimental love. Puppy-like enthusiasm, but it's active and it's sacrificial. And uh, my experience in Liberty Church is that actually they're good at this and uh, Paul recognizes that with the Philippians and we and they get to pray for it all the more and I think this is kind of my first point of application for us is take a moment to reflect how are relationships with others doing are we abounding in love for them or actually And I think there's two other states. Is our love for others shrinking in this time? Or is it just kind of plateauing? You know, there's days where I just want to be left alone, where I've had enough of this lockdown. There's other days where I can't wait, genuinely can't wait to be on that Zoom call and speak to that person. And I think this is an important gauge that Paul is drawing our eyes to. You know, How are levels of love for other people in the city? You know, has life become insular or are we still thinking about our neighbours, praying for them, looking for ways to serve our, our friends and our family? But Paul doesn't stop at abounding love. He then adds on top of that knowledge. And love and knowledge lead us to a deeper love. It's not a complicated concept, this. You know, I... One of my sons loves sport, and so I know that if I go to him and say, you know, want to do some sport, he'll say, yeah, and he'll feel really loved. My daughter Zara, she loves notes. And that's how she expresses her love to others, but she also loves to receive it. And by knowing that, I can uh, show her that I love her even more. Which reminds me, I need to write her a note. So you get that love and knowledge can lead to a deeper love, but Paul specifically says that uh, we need to pray for this knowledge, and we need to kind of grasp two things here. One is that this knowledge is quite specific. He's talking uh, not about general knowledge, the knowledge of everything in the universe, but he's talking about knowledge of God. And when he writes about this knowledge in his other letters, he talks about knowledge of God's righteousness of his son Jesus of his will of sin and of the truth this is the knowledge that Paul wants us to add to our love for others and the second reason he's telling us we need to pray for it is because it can't just stay in our heads we can read this book and have it not penetrate our hearts at all but as we pray it can then begin to rest in our hearts. And this is what Paul wants to happen. He wants love not to be a head knowledge thing only, but an an experiential thing. So that, you know, I know there's an old song, you know, I I know that Jesus loves me because the Bible tells me so. But I know that, I know that, I know that, I know that he loves me because I've experienced his love. I've experienced that the love the Bible speaks about is true. Paul wants us to be knowing of God and knowing that we're known by God too. Because God knows us inside out. He knows us better than we can ever know ourselves. And this needs to hit our head and our hearts. And one way to grow into a fuller knowledge of God, Paul's demonstrating here, is that we pray for it. And daily we can pray, you know, God, won't you reveal your love to me? Won't you show me uh, how you delight in me? That's what the Bible says. And then we can ask him to show us how we can demonstrate our love back to him. How we can demonstrate our love to others all the more. And to love and knowledge, Paul then says, discernment. So we've got three ingredients, love, knowledge, and discernment. And discernment is being able to tell good from evil, lie from truth, but also it's being able to tell what's the best from what is good. One definition that a commentator pulled together, coined... Is that discernment is moral perception of what is the right action in a given situation. And this is what Paul wants us to grasp here. So, discernment, so love and knowledge is that we need to love our enemies. That's what Jesus says. And discernment then adds, but we don't want to be influenced by their way of living. You know, it's to hold that. Every human being is made in God's image and worthy of respect and worthy of love. But in all of us, we are all battling our own selfish will and we all need Jesus to help us live rightly. And love and knowledge and discernment kind of help us hold these two things in place. So mature love can sometimes be less cute and fluffy, but I... I think it's more beautiful. You know, a kid's first tantrum is kind of cute. But if they're still having tantrums at 21, that's not so cute. We can often feel the weight of needing to love everyone. It can seem affirming, it can seem accepting, but when we add discernment, we begin to realize we're wanting to love people into a specific direction. We're wanting to love people in the direction of knowledge and discernment. We're wanting to love everyone into a mature love. You know, later on in the prayer, we read that uh, part of that mature love leads us into a pure and a blameless life. We're wanting to love everyone, but we're wanting to love them in the direction of everyone getting closer to Jesus. So practically, love calls out sin. Love calls others into righteousness and maturity. You know, I've had some really hard conversations where uh, friends and mentors have sat me down and said, look, look, Dan, you know, they wanted to affirm their gentleness, and their commitment and their love for me but then they've also gone on to say but what you're doing here is not in line with the Bible and I've had to usually I take a moment to acknowledge it to I've got to often choose to be humble and not be defensive the, there's a proverb that says faithful are the wounds of a friend and I've had to acknowledge that actually as they're speaking the truth to me in love it's because they want to love me in that Christ-like direction. One friend pointed out to me that, you know, I was wanting to be seen as cool, which I think I am, so maybe I still struggle with it a little bit, but, but he was saying that if I hold on to that as something I'm Striving for it is going to hinder me stepping into what God's made me for. I'm worrying more about what others think of me than what God thinks of me and who he's made me to be. So if we see a friend living in a way that's leading them uh, into something less than excellence, then we can call it out. Paul's prayer is that the Philippians will express their love to one another in ways that show both a knowledge of how to obey God generally and specifically how to make moral decisions based on God's will in the give and take of everyday life. Ephesians 4:15 it puts it this way it says rather and the rather is rather than staying like children rather Speaking the truth in love, we're to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ. So Paul's saying that as we speak truth and love to one another, so we become more like Christ. Tim Keller, author, theologian, preacher, he puts it this way. He says, love without truth is sentimentality. It supports and affirms us, but keeps us in denial of our flaws. And he says, truth without love is harshness. It gives us information, but in such a way that we cannot really hear it. And then he goes on to kind of show that it's demonstrated in Christ, this love and this truth. He says, God's saving love in Christ, however, is marked by both radical truthfulness about who we are, and yet also radical, unconditional commitment to us. And this is what mature Christian love looks like. Love plus knowledge plus discernment. And then we come to the big why. Why is Paul writing these three things? This is kind of the subject uh, of the sentence. And that is so that we can approve what is excellent that we'll be able to know what's excellent and then live excellently it's kind of another way of saying that actually we'll be able to grow spiritually as Christians so the equation is forming that love plus knowledge plus discernment leads to excellence now We need to take a moment to understand what he means here, what's going on here, because when we think of excellence, we can see it as an absolute standard that we need to attain. You know, we're shooting for excellence. That's what we're aiming for, and that can become a heavy load. And actually, Paul is saying that excellence follows love and knowledge and discernment. You don't need to shoot for it, but it will follow. So as you pray for those things, we're going to see it. And hopefully that takes off the load a little bit. The picture uh, he's kind of thinking of here is, is that of testing metals or testing money for purity. A little bit like the Olympians. Who you, you, know, you might have seen them biting their, their medals, medals. Because if it's pure gold, then it's soft and you can lead, leave some little teeth imprints on it. That's testing it. And that's what Paul wants us to have the ability to do, is to kind of test, is it true? Is it excellent? Is that what we're shooting for? The picture is of having two options in front of you and knowing which one is best. It's kind of discernment lived out practically. So excellence is the product of our choices, and our choices are the product of love and knowledge and discernment. Paul knows that life is complicated and it's not usually as obvious as, you know, this is the right choice and that is the wrong choice. And that's why we need love and knowledge and discernment to keep figuring our way through, trying to discern what is excellent, what is best. This is what Paul wants for the Philippians, and he wants it for us too. He wants our hearts and minds to be saturated with Jesus' love, with knowledge of him, with discernment of what is excellent. So how do we begin to live this out? How do we begin to decide what is excellent around us? You know, what's, what's excellent in the news, at home, in our families, at work? The prayer shows us that in Christ we can begin to recognize this as we begin to get rooted in love and knowledge and discernment. You know, when we read the news, we can read it for entertainment. We can read it just to kind of tut at it, to feel disheartened and disappointed with the world. Or we can read the news and begin to ask God, you know, what are you doing in this world? Is there some way I can be part of what you're doing? Is there something you want me to pray for, for the world? And you can begin to approve what is excellent in it. So, remember, excellence is a product. It's not what we aim for. And in this church, we don't want to be a a church that's shooting for excellence, but we want to be a church that is praying persistently for us to be rooted in love, in knowledge and discernment. And then we expect excellence to follow. There's three other fruits of this prayer or results of the prayer. And that's that we'll become pure and blameless and will be full of the fruit of righteousness. They're three fairly distinct things. I'm not going to go into all three. I wanted to talk about purity, because I think that is one that actually we can get a bit uncomfortable with. Because I think purity doesn't have a great reputation today. I think that we kind of associate purity with being a bit naïve. Purity is a bit irrelevant. You know, it's for times gone by where they didn't know as much as we know. We're much more worldly in our thinking now. Purity can seem a bit boring or a bit judgmental. You may have noticed that all superhero stories now have a flawed superhero. So when I grew up, the Superman story, his only weakness was kryptonite. It was something external to him but every superhero now has some internal kind of moral dilemma or conflict or backstory where they were compromised and they need to hide it, and they're kind of, there's always this internal battle with themselves. I think of Iron Man who, you know, he, he was a pretty dark character before he realised he, he could be a superhero and do good. He was selling arms to dictators around the world. And these kind of flawed superheroes I think they can become more attractive to us because they seem more complex they seem more believable and I think part of the reason they seem more believable is when we look at ourselves when we look at ourselves and we kind of think of our own levels of purity and and actually we can find ourselves wanting, we can find that there's guilt and shame for stuff that's happened in the past and therefore purity can seem unattainable, can seem unattractive, can seem unbelievable. But in the Bible, we see Jesus paints a different picture of purity. He actually makes it look amazing. There's story after story through the Gospels. I haven't time to dig into all of them, but Jesus hangs out with people that everyone else was judging, and he doesn't judge them. That's what purity looks like. He gets his hands dirty and kind of the muck of the earth. But he doesn't sin. He stays pure. He stays blameless. And my own experience of kind of hanging with people who I think have got a real purity about them is that it's wonderful. I don't feel judged by them. Actually, usually I feel loved by them. There's a beauty and an attractiveness to it. And it's also wonderful when you know that Jesus has made you pure. Because it means that you can live free of masks, free of covering up your flaws and your failures, free of managing expectations. It can be a real liberty for how you can live. You know, what's more, Jesus says there's a blessing. He says, blessed are the pure in heart, for they'll get to see God. So purity can be this incredibly positive thing. And you may have noticed that, the, that Paul has shifted in his prayer from kind of loving others to actually our own moral condition. Paul's warning us to regain a high view of purity, of blamelessness, of living righteous or living rightly. He wants us to desire them, to grow in them, that we should want to have purity in our hearts, in our relationships, in our work dealings. Not just kind of avoiding what's criminal and what's ugly, but valuing what is good and what's pure. And not just in front of other people, but in front of Jesus. You know, we're to be pure and blameless, ready for the day of Jesus' return. Obviously not just on that day, but even now. And Paul tells us that we attain this through the fruit of righteousness that is through Jesus Christ. That was in verse 11. So it's before Jesus we want to be pure and blameless and it's through him as well. It's a position and a process. We grow into it as we grow in love, in knowledge, and in discernment. You know, we declare pure when we step over the line of faith, when we say, okay, Jesus, I recognise I've been living my way I want to live your way and I want to receive your forgiveness at that point 1 John 3.3 says this that anyone who thus hopes in him in Jesus purifies himself and he is pure oh he purifies himself as he Jesus is pure so we take on Christ's purity as we hope in Christ Isaiah 1.18 says that though your sins are like scarlet, our sins were like bright red, they shall be as white as snow. Pure snow. Utterly blameless in front of God. Ephesians 4.21 talks about us putting on a new self. That we're created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. So if you've stepped over the line of faith, as many of us watching have, then these are true for you. That Jesus says that your position is that you are pure, that you're righteous, that you're holy, that you're washed whiter than snow. And that's where we've got to start. That's our position. But it's also a process. But without this knowledge, without the knowledge that before God we're declared pure and holy, then we're just gonna be kind of beating ourselves to try and be pure. And the more I dwell on the fact that this is my position, the more motivated I become to want to live pure. You know, this leaves me wanting to live well. It means that every day I can wake up with like a new start. I can wake up saying, okay, I'm whiter than snow this morning. I want to live well for Jesus. We get to enjoy this with Jesus every day. In thinking about purity, I began to think about when Soph and I were dating. And uh, we wanted our relationship to be pure before God. Because the Bible is is clear that, uh, that pure sex happens in the marriage relationship. It happens when there's been a lifelong covenant and commitment made before God and before others. And we wanted to live that out. And... Uh, To know that, we had to kind of actively think through, well, how are we going to do that? Because we knew our weaknesses. We knew our vulnerabilities. So we tried to be careful with it. You know, simple things like not staying uh, too late in each each other's homes. We had to innovate and uh, find ways of being affectionate to one another that didn't lead to sexual arousal. So purity became... Active and intentional. You know, our love for God, we added knowledge of our positional purity and we added discernment that led us into making active choices for our purity. But what happens is our personal process purity follows our positional purity. Our personal process purity follows our positional purity. It starts with the position, knowing that we're holy and pure and then we wanna be holy and pure. We wanna know our position first, and then we try and live out the process, and with the process, actually, we can know that God is in it as well. About a month ago, we were working, two months ago, we were working through the book of Thessalonians, and there's some verses in chapter five that say abstain from every form of evil. That's us. We're trying to abstain from every form of evil And then it says, now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. God's going to sanctify us. And may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the day, at the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you as faithful, he'll surely do it. So we abstain, but he's doing it. It's a partnership with him. This is wonderful. This means that the the weight can be lifted off us, that he's working with us. He's given us the position and he's working with us in the process. So how do we pursue purity? By praying for love, knowledge, and discernment. And then we expect it to follow. So I'm going to land, conclude here. That in Paul's prayer, I think he's giving us a clue as to what's important for us to pray during this lockdown. That we want God's love to permeate through layers, like of an onion, into our relationships with others. It shows us how love leads us to grow in our knowledge of God and our knowledge of others. The knowledge leads us to ask God for wisdom, to know how he sees things his view of what's excellent, and even the most complicated situations. And then deepest down in the core of our being, it's working and has worked, both it's working and it's worked to transform us from uh, a muddy puddle to a babbling spring brook to be pure and blameless and full of the fruits of righteousness. Righteousness we might be saying, you know, I can never do that, or that would take me so long. And this is the amazing news, is that the gospel has done that for us. That when Jesus died on the cross for our sins, he exchanged our lack of purity for his purity. He exchanged our blame for his blamelessness. He exchanged our unrighteousness for his righteousness. He exchanged our mediocrity for his excellence. And it's a journey too that he gradually changes us from the inside out to become what he's already declared on our behalf. So really today's call is for us to pray for love and knowledge and discernment, to expect excellence, Purity, blamelessness, the fruit of righteousness to follow. And this will then lead us to the glory and the praise of God. Now, if you've ever ne- never known or experienced this love, because that's the first place, then you can join with me even now. I'm going to pray for us. I'm going to pray Paul's prayer on us. And if you have experienced it, then we take a moment now, receive more of God's love and knowledge and discernment.